And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD, Thursday, the 1st of December. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm very happy to be sitting opposite Dr. Art Sear from the faculty of Carthage College, my most frequent morning show guest. And this is likely the last visit that we will have in the calendar year of 2022. But uh, I appreciate all of the conversations that we have had over the years and look forward to many, many more. Uh, Professor Sear, uh, in addition to his work uh, at at Carthage, is also uh, a columnist whose work appears uh, in newspapers all across the country and uh, outside the country as well, also author of After the Cold War, and uh, my guest today to talk about uh, a number of different pressing issues and concerns. Professor Sear, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, Professor Berg, it's always a pleasure, uh, partly because the central heating is always (laughs) extremely good in this building. I must compliment you. It's not the only reason I show up. (laughs) It is a draw on a on a day like this, yes, Mother Nature has been rather, rather fierce. So, uh, but anyway, I'm I'm glad that you are here in this season shortly after Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for your uh, continued presence on the morning show. We'll get to Thanksgiving in just a moment. I want to briefly talk about a couple of of bigger issues uh, that I think we'll 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 touch on uh, o- only briefly. Uh, one of them, of course, the, the recently completed uh, midterm elections, and of course there had been widespread predictions that there would be a massive uh, red wave, which uh, did not quite materialize as some had expected. I'm just curious if, uh, if you were surprised at all by what the ultimate results of the midterm elections were. Well, I'd like to say nothing surprises me, young man, and that's why... <laughs> Uh, I don't have any special inside information. I have learned to become skeptical of the polls Mm. since 2016. Uh, Nonetheless, I was surprised because generally the the party that has the White House loses some seats. It's uh, almost like clockwork. (laughs) Sometimes it's not very many, and this time the... um, uh, the Republicans have taken over the House at this point, it's fair to say. So in that sense, it's worked. But the party obviously has a weak image and has, um, has some problems in terms of mobilizing voters. I think what was especially surprising to people is given that President Biden's approval ratings uh, are, are quite low, uh, I mean, that would have indicated what you said almost always happens in the midterms would probably have happened uh, in an especially big way. And in a sense, just the opposite happened. Yeah, well, there's a very, um, there's a a much more controversial, much more well-defined figure on the scene, the 800-pound gorilla or Godzilla, from the point of view of critics, Donald Trump. And he's been going around making mischief in ways that have directly hurt the party. He endorsed a lot of candidates, many of whom are quite extreme, to put it politely. But a number of them did get nominated, uh, and they they got clobbered at the polls. Um, for people like me, who are not particularly, who I'm, I'm very critical of, of Trump in terms of my own personal views and politics, which is of no consequence except um, uh, he remains a very, very powerful figure on the scene. The fact that his people, the, his endorsed candidates didn't do well, I think, um, d- directly hurt the Republicans. Uh, he's also raised a tremendous amount of money, but he spent very little of it hmm. on Republican candidates. 
the Wall Street Journal had a very insightful editorial, a conservative publication, of course, but but uh, very critical of Trump editorially in recent, the last few years. They weren't so much initially. Uh, they made the point that Mitch McConnell really deserves a lot of credit, often criticized from the right in his party, actually. The party did as well as it did because he was far more responsible, shrewd, and rather selfless in making sure that conservatives as well as more moderate Republicans got elected. Mm -hmm. So to give you a short answer for a change, it was, you know, the Trump factor. And there are also um, issues that on balance help the Democrats as issues. The decision on Roe versus Wade, which did not ban abortion but return decision-making to the states by the conservative uh, majority on the current Supreme Court. That obviously was a factor, and your associates at National Public Radio emphasized that dimension. That's an important issue, but not. it's an issue that cuts both ways, by the way. Hmm. And it's not the only issue. I think it, it was Trump. And finally, you can't beat somebody with nobody. And President <laughs> Biden may be unpopular, but uh, against Trump, he doesn't look so bad. Mm -hmm. And he, in any case, the president was not directly involved. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's in any way historic, but it shows the Republican Party has work to do. If right. gonna, just because the president's in uh, the basement and poll ratings doesn't mean Republicans are going to win big, whoever they finally nominate in right. 24. They cannot afford to be complacent. I thought what was really striking uh, in terms of talking about extreme candidates that generally speaking, did not do well, except in certain pockets of the country. Right. Uh, but in that in particular, I've read this in a couple of places, that what really did not go over well with the vast majority of, of voters was was those candidates, were those candidates that were uh, kind of at the heart of, at their heart in terms of their issues, election deniers. I mean, those kind of calling into question the whole process of the integrity of, of voting and and uh, the integrity of our elections, that uh, for somebody who trumpeted that particular cause, they almost without exception did not do well, that that seemed to be an issue did, that did not rest very easily with uh, quite a few voters, which I found really interesting. Yeah. Uh, since the 1960s, our system has become overall far more honest and far less corrupt um, things that were part of politics. Until Those smoke-filled rooms, you mean? And yeah, <laughs> and they, I, I actually kind of like smoke-filled rooms in terms of what they can produce. Harry Truman, President Truman, for instance, <laughs> among a number of others. Also leaders who aren't so good. But how, how have we done since they were abolished? We right. still have a very mixed picture politically. Sure. But in terms of old-time corruption... Uh, there are people in federal prison now who are doing things that uh, were part of part of everyday politics mm -hmm. until the 60s. A very uh, experienced uh, Illinois politician who almost got elected governor um, told me, Neil Hardigan, he was um, attorney general, lieutenant governor, a product of the old daily machine. He almost was elected governor in 1990. I spent two years working with him and others, very good, mostly younger people at the World Trade Center in Chicago, um, getting them out of some difficulty and, and greatly strengthening their balance sheet. Um, quite an interesting education for me. 
um, the organization, we, I can assure you, we kept it clean and solved some minor IRS problems, did not fire anybody. I'm very proud of that. Mm. Uh, I was also very glad to uh, leave in 98 and come up to Carthage College. But anyway, Neil, who is busy at a very demanding law firm, McDermott, Will & Emery, did occasionally stop by on his way down to uh, see his friend, former Congressman Ron Rostomkowski, who was in Stateville Prison. Mm. And uh, this was in the 90s, and he pointed out to me, I think it's a very insightful observation, that the goalposts have, have been moved. Congressman Rostenkowski is, is, is not basically a criminal or, you know, not organized crime, but he got caught up in a changing system. So over, overall, it's quite, we Americans should be very happy about the way our system is working. Right, and not, not take that for granted. Yeah. And, and I think the, the election shows that. Well, we shouldn't take it for granted, but also there's, uh, uh, you make a very good point. Nationally, Trump has not gotten any substantial traction with these claims that have been pretty much discredited by the facts that somehow the election was stolen. Right. I also wanted to ask you briefly about this matter of a potential railroad strike. Yeah. And it's always kind of interesting when... <laughs> Suddenly, uh, everybody is talking about railroads when most of the time nobody talks about railroads except maybe people who uh, work in that industry or work adjacent to that industry. But, uh, you know, railroads are just, uh, and maybe if you ride Amtrak or something, but I mean, we just don't spend a whole lot of time talking about trains. And then suddenly there's the potential of a strike and suddenly, oh my gosh, what, what if something happens to the trains? And it just makes you realize how oblivious Americans tend to be about something that is so crucial to our infrastructure? Well, perhaps in the verified atmosphere of public radio, uh, there's not a lot of discussion of trains. But oh, I don't, fact, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't, I've, my guess is, by and large, Americans don't stop to think about trains as much as they should and how much we depend on them. Well, I'm glad you said stop because <laughs> Americans who travel by car, we spend increasing amounts of time at railroad crossings because yeah. of the nonstop traffic, mostly freight. Yeah. Passenger traffic is increasing in this country. And since you bring it up, um, older people, a rapidly growing percentage of the population, young men, especially <laughs> older women, like increasingly are drawn to public transportation. And railheads, when you have passenger train um, stations, literally commerce blossoms. Hmm. That's, it wasn't too long ago that uh, Governor Doyle in, in this state at the end of the last century and the beginning of this one gave tremendous emphasis to passenger rail. Oh, yeah. And it's gonna continue to grow. Mm. Those, the, until 1963, you could get on the train in Chicago at Union Station or Northwestern, I think more likely Northwestern, and go directly to Milwaukee. I think that's coming back. Meanwhile, a huge amount of freight moves by rail, and a huge number of workers, mostly but not exclusively male, are involved in that. That's a subject that I, I hope more attention will be paid. To I do, too. By, by public radio, actually, actually, they're a very good employer. You have very good pensions. You don't need a college degree. And those pensions are directly guaranteed by the federal government. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very very good place for working people to work. Right, and it's I, and I guess my main point is just I think most of us walk around not mindful, not sufficiently mindful 
of the fact that so much of what we you know grab from the grocery store shelves or wh- whatever, yeah. I mean the medications that show up at Walgreens and all kinds of other things that that trains uh, that we might see at a crossing once in a while, I mean are 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 vital to that. What would it mean to our country? Uh, if we were to be enveloped in a, a rail strike, I mean, maybe that's a little less likely now with the U.S. House passing a, a, yeah, a bill. Yeah, I think it's a lot less likely. But, but I mean, what would that mean uh, if if such a strike occurred? It would mean a lot of inconvenience. The economy would not shut down. Uh, truck traffic, uh, truck traffic would inc- increase even more significantly when we're not stopped at railroad. Uh, uh, crossings, especially people who use the interstate a lot, which I do for mm. commuting and partly for business, the uh, we're dodging 18-wheelers mm-hmm. right on right on our rear bumpers, <laughs> which is a huge change in the culture over the last half century, especially. But anyway, I think you know other alternative forms. It's been a great boon to this area as well. I think the more we can talk about how things impact Kenosha, Wisconsin, the the uh, Illinois. Wisconsin, sort of Great Lakes area, the better. More than half the interstate truck traffic in North America, including Canada and Mexico, goes through this area. Wow. 294, 90, 94, 80. The Chicago-Milwaukee metro area has a huge amount of traffic. Main factor in why the um, Rust Belt uh, moniker is no longer heard all that much. We are extremely well located, and people should keep that in mind when the news is bad. Right. I, I, it would not lead to a, a broad recession or another Great Depression or any kind of increase in unemployment. Another factor why the Republicans did not do better is President Biden may not be the most magnetic, gripping, inspiring figure in the White House <laughs> ever been our president, but the economy is very good. We mm-hmm. have essentially full employment, mm-hmm. which is extraordinary, historic, mm-hmm. just it shows the profound power of this country's economy. Just right. extraordinary. Right. I agree. By the way, with trains uh, and uh, Governor Doyle's uh, wishes to uh, dramatically expand uh, uh, passenger rail service right. in Wisconsin, one of the things I remember being so striking about that was the fact that the coalition that was behind that uh, crossed all kinds of barriers. It was people on the left, people on the right, environmentalists and business leaders all wanted to see that happen. I mean, not every single person, and of course, ultimately, it's, nobody wanted to pay for it, but I mean, it was an an exceptionally broad coalition when it came to those who were supporting uh, commuter rail uh, expansion in Wisconsin, which was a really striking thing to see. I mean, in, in an era when uh, those kind of factors don't tend to agree on very much, but they yeah. agreed on the potential for what that expansion would have meant. That's a very insightful point, Greg. I'm so glad you made it. And it also shows a profound reversal. The uh, railroads used to be the heavies, succeeded by the oil companies and other corporate villains. Mm. But well into the 20th century, the railroads were uniquely powerful, sort of maybe like telecom today, and and greatly feared. Um, More, an average of three people were every day were killed at uh, unmarked rail crossings in the city of Chicago into the 20th century. And uh, when public authorities tried to get the railroads to do a more responsible job, they were told, in effect, go to hell. Mm. And if you really caused trouble, the railroad barons would kill you. Wow. Or have you killed. I mean, that was a cost of business. 
way back in the good old days. <laughs> so finally, a huge coalition of all the other major businesses in the Chicago area, plus workers to a degree, plus the increasingly powerful Democratic political machine got together, and they literally reigned in the railroads, forced mm. them to be responsible corporate citizens. And we all benefit because... Uh, the railroad barons had plans to build enormous warehouses and freight yards right up against Lake Michigan. So mm. thanks to the fact that the political power structure, those politicians, those smoke-filled room guys <laughs> got together, that's why we have a beautiful Chicago lakefront, and it's not some kind of god-awful, ugly, uh, dangerous area. There's been huge growth in rail yards in in the southwest southwest of the Chicago metropolitan area, also never discussed in the news, that reflects just how significant transportation is to our economy. Hmm. And I certainly hope you will go forth (laughs) and preach the gospel to others in public (laughs) radio and television and so we can cover this issue, including the tremendous benefits for working people today of rail and transport. But they're, they're tough employers, they're tough jobs, especially in trucking. Right. Which which gets to your point about unions. Yeah. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Art Sear, Clausen Distinguished Professor at Carthage College and uh, my frequent guest on the morning show. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, we've discussed right. this yes. off the yeah. air. I'm sorry. We have discussed this yes. off the air. All right. right. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's force of habit. I, I apologize. No, yeah. that's all right. Don't apologize. No yeah. need to apologize, but let's make this the last time. <laughs> right. Okay. Absolutely. Please. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, my God. So, um, so we have just crossed the Thanksgiving holiday, and uh, you had a column, a beautifully written column about uh President Abraham Lincoln, who, of course, is responsible for there being a national day of Thanksgiving. But uh, your your column points out that uh, we should not only be thankful to President Lincoln, but also to an extraordinary woman who uh, was instrumental in that, uh, in that holiday being developed. So I really appreciated you telling the story of, I think it's Sarah Josepha Hale. Yes, I think you probably even pronounced her name right. Yes. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> so tell our listeners who won't know that name why she figures so prominently in this story. Well, I didn't know her name till I started working on the column, hmm. an initial version, uh, a while ago. The, um, yeah, she was the editor of Godey's Ladies Book. I think it's G-O-D-E-Y apostrophe S, L-A-D-Y apostrophe S. I suspect not even Grandma is familiar with that publication, but back in the 1800s it was... Um, I don't know, a combination of Vogue and the Ladies' Home Journal and Life Mm. and Look and all those publications that are not around anymore, really. It was very, very powerful with the female population in the country. And she felt we should have Thanksgiving and had been writing presidents for decades about having a Thanksgiving holiday. Mm. I didn't know any of this until I started working on on (laughs) the the Lincoln column. And... um, uh, individual states did recognize Thanksgiving. It was There was great national awareness, but it didn't become a national holiday until, I believe, 1863. She uh, wrote to Lincoln in September of 63. He had issued a preliminary proclamation in 1861, his first year in the White House, uh, ordering all government federal offices closed to recognize the importance of giving thanks to our Father in heaven, uh, again, a different world from 
from today, um, a very Victorian proclamation. But he read her letter. One of the things about Lincoln is how phenomenal he was at getting things done. Hmm. No, t- no telephone, no motor vehicle, <laughs> no cell phone. Even <laughs> The sheer amount of work this man was able to do. He had able assistance, but he himself did a tremendous amount. He actually took note of her uh, correspondence and answered her politely. And in 1863, he issued the executive order that we have a national Thanksgiving holiday. It was extremely well-timed in terms of the United States war effort, the federal effort against the secessionist Confederates. Things were coming together after horrific losses for about a year and a half, two years. Things were starting to move in the direction of the Union. And with, with great comprehensive vision, he was able to use this, not at all cynically, but use it in a very effective way to reinforce his Emancipation Proclamation of early six, at the beginning of 63, freeing slaves in the Confederate states and build on the growing Union power. At one point you say in the column, uh, talking then more specifically about the Emancipation Proclamation and what it said and what it didn't say, and about the way in which, the measured way in which Lincoln went after this goal of ultimately freeing the slaves, you you make mention of Lincoln employing astonishing political skill and the fact that he seemed to have a really great understanding of what could be done versus what should be done or what should be done when or what needed to happen before other things could happen as opposed to somebody who might have uh, chosen to act much more rashly and, and of course, maybe undermine the very things they were trying to bring about. Yeah, I think that's very well stated. He did not actually control the Union Army in, uh, in any un- unquestioned sense until the fall of 1862 after losing in the East uh, meanwhile, General Grant and Sherman were, were winning and winning big in the West, but in the Eastern Front, the main one, um, the Union armies suffered a whole series of defeats. Finally, General McClellan in September of 62 won a victory at Antietam. Uh, Robert E. Lee retreated in order. The Confederate Army was still very much intact, but he left the field. Antietam uh, Maryland or Virginia, it's pretty far north in any case, um, Antietam Creek. And they simply couldn't sustain the, the uh, South, that, that kind of force, that far north after they were fought to a standstill. So they left. Lincoln seized on the opportunity to, um, for one thing, General McClellan, the commander, he was pro-slavery. He was also pro-Union. He was very reluctant to fight, especially from Lincoln's point of view. In fairness to him, he was very much aware of just how horrible war had become mm. by the middle of the 1800s. So he demanded control over all war policy, which was just what the president was waiting for. Lincoln, uh, he didn't want to mess with kindly Abe and, you know, the, he was extraordinarily good at, at putting the kibosh on enemies, if not immediately. <clears throat> so he immediately seized on the opportunity to fire McClellan. He finally, for the first time, had control of the Union Army in the East, and he used that as the basis 
to um, be much more aggressive in warning the South that we are going to seize your property. And that's the way he approached emancipation in the South. The Emancipation Proclamation, uh, the Lincoln administration was able to get a couple of laws through Congress called the Confiscation Acts, again, confirming us war power, making, telling the South, we are taking your property. This is not a declared war, but you are in violation of the law. We are seizing your property, your criminals. Um, in violation of increasingly clear federal statutes. On the basis of that, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation in early 63. He finally established presidential authority in the way we understand that. And he had this nice letter from Sarah Joseph Hale, and he'd already laid the groundwork for a positive Thanksgiving message. Mm. All kinds of things came together in his head. The Emancipation Proclamation is a dry legal document it doesn't make any moral references. We're going to seize property, and um, slaves are no longer under Confederate control. He transformed the war from the war to reunite the Union, in effect, to a war against slavery. It was very important because the British and French governments were playing and toying with the idea of recognizing the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. Jefferson Davis, Lincoln's counterpart, was working far, far less efficiently and far less productively. But one of his top priorities was to get the British and the French in on the side of the Confederates. Wow, if they could that do that, like the French and the Dutch helping the Americans, crucially in our revolution, they could have won. Oh, that could have changed everything. Yeah. Wow. Once it became about slavery, there, there were British aristocrats who really liked the South, and Southern agriculture was especially um, cotton and rice, uh, was essential to the British, enormous British economy. But once it became about slavery, there were still aristocrats who liked the idea, but workers across Britain, including in huge industrial centers like Birmingham and Manchester said, you were discussing unions earlier, we're not working. Mm. Yeah, you can find somebody else to do this work if you start recognizing a slave state. Wow. And the timing was great. It ended any, uh, any possibility hmm. of um, those, those very powerful nations in the world then uh, saving the Confederacy. Hmm. Additionally, the Union was finally winning in 63, right after the Emancipation Proclamation and just before his thing, Thanksgiving Proclamation. Uh, we started winning big. Grant and the Western armies he controlled took over Vicksburg, uh, confirming Union control of the entire Mississippi River. And of course, General Meade was able to actually win significantly against Lee in, in uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And so. the tide truly turned then. Absolutely, yeah, but, but the ability to orchestrate, that's mm -hmm. true leadership. We, right. you, you cannot just give orders and hire and fire people, but when you can or orchestrate resources, in this case at the most uh, challenging and, and terrible level war, it's, it's just an extraordinary example of executive leadership. Hmm. The time is 8.40. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm so happy to have Dr. Art Sear with me uh, uh, to be talking about an array of very uh, different issues and concerns. Two different recent columns have both approached the topic of free speech 
uh, in really intriguing ways, one of them involving a court decision in the state of Florida that essentially struck down something called the Individual Freedom Act, which, uh, despite its name, is actually really not about freedom, but rather about prescribing the way in which certain things uh, would be taught uh, and the way in which uh, people would be referred to in, ter- in terms of, of, uh, of appearance, their ethnicity, and, and, and so on. The other column referring to Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and his decision, in a sense, to kind of release what had been, in, in your mind, uh, at least uh, rather heavy-handed censorship that oh. had occurred at Twitter. I mean, you and a number of others, of course, have made that observation. Uh, so it was kind of an interesting coincidence for this issue to kind of arise in two different columns, focusing on the issue in two different arenas. But it really speaks to kind of rising concerns about uh, our own right to free speech and uh, personal privacy and, and, and what that means in 2022. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, Elon Musk, as everyone knows, has bought Twitter, and uh, lots of excitement is is uh, excitement follows this particular business leader, uh, no matter what he's up to or what he's doing, given his style and given his enormous wealth and therefore influence. Uh, the column was very critical of what I think is uneven, uh, definitely not even-handed uh, censorship and moderation, as it's called in the trade on the part of Twitter. Everybody knows that they uh, banned President Trump when he was in the White House from Twitter, and Musk has uh, reinstated him with a great drum roll and uh, 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 a whole orchestra. And uh, I think Elon Musk does everything with a drum roll, doesn't exactly, he? Exactly, yeah, much like <laughs> Donald Trump. And the president has said, no, thank you, I'm going to stick with my own social media platform. I can't remember the name of that one. <laughs> Uh, but the Ayatollah, uh, the chief religious leader in Iran, right, he's on Twitter. He regularly calls for the destruction of Israel and the burning of all Jews. And, and uh, according to the previous management of Twitter, that's fine. Mm. He's just expressing political views. But anything Trump comes up with, of course, that's criminal. That's horrible. We've got to agonize at length. So I'm very glad that that, that uh, point of view on the part of people who had great— I'm very glad they're gone. And that's the end of the story. The thing that I found really interesting as you wrote about this is you talked about how concentrated power remains dangerous. Yes. And, and I, I thought that was a really good observation to make because I think in a lot of ways, this world of the Internet you know, is not about the concentration of power. It's in a sense of the diffusion of power. It's like everybody has access to this thing. Anybody can write anything. Uh, or I mean, you know, there's in, in some respects a dramatic democratization when it comes to something like uh, the Internet. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be powerful. You no. don't have to be reconnected. So in some ways, it, as I said, it it's, it's sort of feels at its heart to be about the diffusion of power, giving everybody in a sense, a voice that they maybe never had before. And on the other hand, even in this world of the Internet, there do indeed remain these pockets of concentrated power and authority that I think you very rightly point out are really dangerous. I mean, the, well, that even in that vast landscape, there are things like Twitter, there are things like Google, there are things like Facebook that retain an enormous amount of 
power over people's lives and with very, very little oversight, uh, you know, for, for instance, from the government. And, uh, and, and it is something we have to be really mindful of. And I think I'm not sure that we are sufficiently mindful of that. But this whole story about Twitter probably brings it to the forefront. I think you're very insightful in making that point, Greg, and you make it very effectively as usual. The, um, uh, uh, Twitter especially, but also other things in the social media world, are generating mostly grassroots political pressure to Congress to become more active and proactive, which will lead to even more uh, drum rolls and more melodrama and more toing and froing in Washington but is really a good thing, more significant because it directly bears on the global economy and whether things crash or not is cryptocurrency, which is not really money, but is treated like money. It's really big-time gambling from my point of view, and we're so mm -hmm. rich in, in the industrial world. There's so much liquid capital collectively that um, something that would have been unheard of even a generation ago, has now been, been attracting a lot of capital. Uh, finally, the administrative arm of arms of the now Biden administration and also Congre Congress is becoming very animated about the subject of cryptocurrency. It's still a very small uh, proportion of the total financial system. And that's one reason why regulators have been complacent. But it's now significant enough with the latest, with the ongoing collapse of companies that were clearly engaged in fraud, that um, and 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 criminal deception of actual and potential investors, that regulation will become much more. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal, again, I don't particularly agree with their editorials, but they're a very good source of news that's serious and professional about what's going on in the economy. And they have had a couple of very persuasive editorials about how uh, high-profile celebrities, that's where the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, especially, but also other arms of the government, including the Justice Department, that's where they've been focusing. They really should be doing more and more nuts and bolts work on antitrust work, on um, potential fraud. Uh, the SEC has spent an awful lot of time uh, going after, um, what's your name? The really big, prominent socialite, social media influencer. They've actually prosecuted her for endorsing products. Hmm. But they've been leaving crypto alone, hmm. and I, I, I am hoping that that will change. Yeah. It's interesting, the different issues and questions that get raised in this new world, and of course, it's all emerged so quickly. Kardashian. Ah, yeah, sorry, yes. sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Sear didn't know the name Kardashian off the top of his head. That's a shock. <laughs> yes, I'm proud to say I'm really out of it. <laughs> as am I. And want to be. <laughs> yeah, as am I. Yeah, right. No, Kardashian-free. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to say that you know, all of this has sprung up so quickly, so no wonder there are you know, kind of awkward questions that have to be wrestled with. We have to kind of figure a lot of things out quickly. But your your column about Twitter and Elon Musk actually takes us back to J John F. Kennedy and, and the fact that although we are quick to credit him with kind of galvanizing the space race and getting us to the moon, that in fact President Kennedy deserves great credit for something else that nobody talks about, but which 
is absolutely essential to this uh, amazing interconnectedness that we all uh, experience in the modern world in terms of technology. Uh, just remind our listeners about this uh, this accomplishment by President Kennedy that is so largely forgotten. Uh, well, thank you very much for bringing it up. Yeah, he is he's rightly credited with um, literally launching the manned space program. Lots of Eisenhower was actually opposed to manned space flight, but instrumentation and very serious space exploration really began under Ike. He, he thought manned space flight was far too expensive, far too an, instruments could do it better, potentially horribly dangerous. Uh, and Kennedy, um, much more attuned to the, his time emerging, really emphasized the importance of manned space flight for all kinds of symbolic and emotional and political reasons. The Soviets were at that point ahead of us in terms of actually getting men into orbit. And uh, we got to the moon and back to Earth. JFK was always careful to include <laughs> by 1969. He had been dead for more than five years, but that legacy continues. And thanks to George W. Bush, we're relaunched, we have relaunched a program to not only go back to the moon, but eventually go to Mars. And Elon Musk says he wants to die on Mars. And there are a lot of people who wish he... <laughs> <laughs> Not me, but there, there are those who wish he already weren't around. It's romantic, but it's also tremendously important. Cell phones result from the miniaturization of that the race, the drive to get to the moon. It's enormous strategic program required. Mm -hmm. Miniaturization of all kinds, lots of health benefits, lots of knowledge about people. So Kennedy's instincts were right, but he also. Um, made the Communication Satellite Corporation a privately chartered corporation. There was tremendous pressure in the Democratic Party, including from Southern conservatives, but nonetheless populist, Western Democrats. It's a very different Democratic Party from today. But populism, anti-business sentiment, was extremely powerful. He took tremendous heat. Uh, when I was a kid, I started reading The New Republic, which has changed, again, changed a lot over the decades. Uh, they are very much a sort of representative of Israel's point of view today, which is fine. But back then, they were an anti-communist, across-the-board, very serious liberal publication, sort of Kennedy-type democratic liberals. And I had the opportunity to read in depth the uh, considerable effort that President Kennedy had to go to to overcome this gigantic opposition to doing anything private. Hmm. Very different world from the way we live today, yeah. very close to the Great Depression. And uh, Kennedy laid the foundation for government business cooperation, therefore, that not only Musk but lots of entrepreneurs are exploiting. So business is now very much part of the space program. And had Kennedy gone the uh, New Deal, Fair Deal route, the Great Depression route, we're going to have another Tennessee Valley Authority or something mm. like that. Uh, I think it would have become even more militarized sooner, hmm. something that Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson were able to at least delay. But uh, we wouldn't have this great cooperation today. And, and you're quite right. Nobody gives President Kennedy credit for that or other things that he accomplished in his associates in his brief tenure in office. By 70, I think in 73, there was a, a ComSat, the Communications Satellite Network, that really defines our lives today, including all kinds of cell phone and all kinds of telephone traffic. 
that network was strongly established. It made the financial system global. Banks immediately mm. put together their own financial communications network and um, opened the door to all kinds of mm. really positive things. And I think you, you, you rightly characterize in your, in your column that President Kennedy really showed vision there. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just about reacting in the moment and what feels right in kind of the immediate future, but trying to take a long-term view of where this could potentially go and the ways in which that path forward might be the most beneficial for the most people. And yes. uh, so both both Roosevelt's, uh, Reagan, uh, absolutely, and uh, JFK had this ability to capture people's imaginations. And, uh, and Eisenhower as well, much underestimated because of all the things that didn't go wrong when <laughs> Ike was in office. Right. And you know, winning the, a phenomenal accomplishment, but he got it done without great fanfare. <laughs> These leaders have an unusual ability to address the public sentiments, but also needs of the time. Hmm. I do want to touch briefly, we'll only have just a couple of minutes, but the other facet of free speech that you tackled in a different column, <laughs> and that involved this court decision in Florida, uh, just briefly explain to our listeners what the Individual Freedom Act, if it had been enacted or allowed to stand, yeah. uh, what that would have meant. I mean, what well, its ramifications would have been. Yeah, the uh, Republican legislature in Florida enthusiastically passed, and Governor DeSantis, with great public fanfare, signed a law that basically infringed considerably on our free speech rights of expression. It's called the anti-woke law. It was directly uh, addressed at um, people who were pursuing left political, social, sexual ideologies and trying to impose this in elementary school as well as across the board in education. Corporations like Disney, under its really stupid previous CEO, who has just been removed, who were pursuing very radical political agendas. Certainly, school children must be protected from exploitation by any adults with agendas, and they already are, as a matter of fact. But this law was so far-reaching that it, in effect, meant the state was going to become a dictator mm -hmm. of what business people, business corporations, and educational institutions could do. And, and the uh, a federal judge, it's, it's a wonderful decision. He quotes George Orwell in 1984, <laughs> uh, struck this down. And DeSantis will continue to benefit, I'm sure, among conservatives around the country. But it's, we're all fortunate the law was struck down. And I realize we're short of time, but I went on to discuss Winston Churchill and uh, his phenomenal use of independent people and people with independent judgment, especially during the war. Right. One Frederick Lindemann in, in Frederick particular. Frederick Lindemann, yes. Uh, a, uh, someone who was... Uh, you know, probably had views that were sometimes hard to take, but I think... It was personality. No, right. It was, personality. It was yeah. horrible personality. He was a chaired professor at Oxford in both uh, physics and philosophy. He had great statistical talent. He was a complete jerk. <laughs> he was totally offensive. And Winston couldn't get enough of him mm. and brought him into the government when Winston became Secretary of the Navy after uh, the war started. And Lindemann was given free reign to criticize everything the Navy did. 
uh, after France fell and Winston became prime minister, Lindemann had authority across the board, criticized the admirals, generals, especially the prime minister. Hmm. What the prime, everybody has a weakness for yes men, excuse me, yes people as they become more powerful, presidents and prime ministers especially. And part of Churchill's genius as a warrior and wartime leader was making sure there were independent points of view. Hmm. And uh, he became Lord Cherwell. Lindemann, actually, he was a terribly lonely person. He actually was able to get women to go out to him, uh, with him, after he became a minister. He never got married, but he actually was able to, he was a very sad man, but he actually was able to find some sort of uh, reasonable life as a result of Churchill's patronage. He mm-hmm. went to the House of Lords. He was no longer this utterly um, off-putting, anti-social Celia Sands. Right. Churchill's daughter, granddaughter, he's so antisocial, <laughs> Grandpa. But part of the point is uh, to not be afraid of those kind of voices that are Absolutely. sometimes contrarian. They might have very, very valuable things to offer in public discourse and in conversations of policy and so on, to be, to be not afraid of those voices with which we might take exception or that come in unpleasant packages. Uh, yeah, this will require another program, or maybe a social media interchange, but JFK especially, but also both Roosevelt's really effective leaders welcome contrary points of view, and I, I hope we can discuss this at more length. I think it's one of the most fundamental uh, insights that uh, that we can share about what real leadership means. But yes, I'm afraid the time is the ultimate tyrant here, and our time is up, but I am Really glad that we had this opportunity to uh, explore a, a number of important and pr- provocative issues and questions well, uh, on, on today's program. Uh, I appreciate this and every other visit we've had and look forward to many, many more. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate That means a lot to me, Greg. I really, uh, I really do mean that.